0: And welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Adam Nash, CEO and co-founder of Daffy, a not-for-profit organization built around the simple idea that everyone should put something aside for those less fortunate than themselves. Daffy empowers people to make giving a habit through a seamless mobile experience that helps members set money aside for charity, watch it grow tax-free in a modern investment portfolio, and donate to more than 1.5 million charities across the U.S. Prior to founding Daffy, Adam was the president and CEO of Wealthfront, held roles at Dropbox, LinkedIn, and eBay, and is an active angel investor. In today's episode, we discuss what it takes to be a great product manager, Adam's lessons learned from Wealthfront, his motivations to start Daffy, and much more. For interested users, I've also included a promo code for Daffy in the episode description. Hope you enjoy the show. So hello, Adam, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's a pleasure to have you on here with us how are you doing today? Where are you calling in from?
1: That's good. I'm I'm calling in from uh, Daffy headquarters in in Los Altos, uh, right near Stanford in Silicon Valley.
0: There you go. Got to get all that good
1: talent coming out from Stanford. It's competitive. Um, The great thing about being a remote company is uh, you can hire from anywhere. It's fantastic. Fair
0: enough. Good news for us warden students, I suppose. Um, But anyways, let's let's just jump right into it. So uh, for listeners who might not know, uh, could you just Give a brief overview of your career to date and uh, how you became involved in fintech.
1: Uh, Sure. Um, I came out of school um, as a computer science uh, major. I I got a bachelor's and master's in computer science from Stanford, focused on human-computer interaction. I went right out of school. I I thought I was joining a company, a really exciting company run by Steve Jobs called Next. Um, But in the middle of my interview process, it was acquired by Apple. So I ended up my first job working on Rhapsody at Apple on a framework that was called Web Objects, which was uh, kind of hot at the time. Um, only stayed at Apple a little less than two years, jumped to a startup in the late 90s because, well, everyone jumped to a startup in the late 90s. Um, that startup went public in 1999 um, because all startups went public in 1999. And then I went to business school. Um, I was in venture capital for a little while, uh, did good stints, multiple tours at, at companies like eBay for Web 1.0, ran product at LinkedIn for four years through the IPO in 2011, and that was really when I started getting involved with fintech directly. I, I ended up in EIR at Greylock Partners, um, which is a great firm. And they didn't have a fintech practice. I don't even think that was the they had a name for it. Um, but I started seeing a number of founders pushing into areas of building effectively financial applications and services for people um, with modern techniques. And so it was actually at Greylock uh, that I met Andy Ratcliffe and um, ended up joining Wealthfront. I was CEO there for four years. After that, I did another stint at Greylock, ended up helping Dropbox out for a couple of years, uh, running product and growth. And in 2020, I left Dropbox and uh, started working on Daffy.
0: Amazing. And uh, you mentioned a little bit about your product experience there. Uh, and I saw on your Twitter profile, you've got a, a post uh, pinned there about being a great product leader. Um, Would just kind of love to get like some of your thoughts on what it takes to be a, a good product leader and maybe which parts of your career have helped you develop that skill the most.
1: Yeah, happy to talk about that. I mean, product is and product leadership in general is an area I'm fairly passionate about, and I think I'm passionate about it because it's a relatively new position, right? When I came out of school uh, back in the '90s, people were just then talking about this dedicated role of product management, and I'd come from an engineering background, so I was excited to jump into it. And then I discovered there weren't a lot of frameworks, not a lot of advice. There was there were no classes that that taught you how to be a great product manager, and so. Um, in the early days of Web 2.0, I, I used the opportunity to blog a lot about what I was learning being a product leader. And then as I grew up in management at, at eBay and then LinkedIn, et cetera, shared those learnings with other folks. Um, so, yeah, the talk at the top of my Twitter profile is uh, one that I gave at Amplitude right before the pandemic in October 2019. And I talk about a lot of those lessons. I, I think great product managers can come from a variety of backgrounds. Some come from more technical backgrounds, engineers. Some come from a design background. Um, Some come from a business and strategy background. I, I think any of those can be successful if they work hard picking up the other skills and frameworks in terms of how to look at problems. I think in the end, the key, though, to being a great product leader is just taking responsibility for the product, right? You know, one of the hard parts about being an engineer or a designer is that there's so much involved in your craft. It's easy to get caught up in the priorities of the craft itself rather than the end goal which is actually delivering a product and service that is is a viable business. And the product manager is the one role, in my view, that actually has to take responsibility for all those things, building something great for the customer, building something that technically can scale, is interesting and and powerful and adds value, and then also can be the heart of a growing and and self-sustaining business. And so um, I think product leadership is a fantastic discipline for people who have a a variety of interests in technology and design and, and business. Um, I also think it can be a very frustrating position for people because very often they jump into it and realize they don't actually have control over anything, right? Most usually product managers don't have people reporting to them. Um, they don't actually have the authority to force decisions to happen. And so it, it's a great, great area, though, if you want to learn about leadership and how to actually align a team towards a goal and success without actually doing all the work yourself. Which sometimes I remember as an engineer, that was the solution that I took. Fair to say that product leadership a good uh, was a good stepping stone for you uh, to take on like a CEO role later on. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I think I think there are a number of places that CEOs can come from, but there's no question for people who aspire to being a founder or a CEO someday. A product is a is a great role because it trains you a little bit on interdisciplinary issues. It forces you to learn what all the different functions do, where the value is created. And in general, like I said, it ends up being a role where you have to learn how to lead a team without actually having the mm-hmm. team report to you. Um, one of the funny things about becoming a CEO, of course, as many will tell you, is that even though technically everyone does report to you, you often find that if you have to control the situation through direct power, you, something's already wrong, right? You haven't haven't used the other alignment techniques. So I find that when product leaders take the CEO role or founders, um, they tend to lead with a certain type of style that isn't authority-driven but goal driven, right? How does everyone understand what you're trying to do, why you're trying to do it, who you're trying to do it for? And product is a great role to learn those things.
0: And let's switch now to uh, your time at Wealthfront. And you mentioned meeting Andy Ratcliffe and uh, eventually joining Wealth Wealthfront. What kind of lured you towards the company? Did he have like a sales pitch that he that he gave you that excited you the most?
1: Uh, he did have a sales pitch at the time. I'm not sure it was it was the right one, but. Uh... He, he was always trying to make it work. I mean, Andy was very passionate about the belief that that there had to be some way to get sophisticated financial advice um, and management of money into the hands of people through software. He was just a very strong believer. Um, I was an early customer of Wealthfront. Wealthfront was a pivot from a company called Kaching. It launched the modern product in December 2011. I think I signed up a few weeks later, one of the first customers Um, And so he knew me. He knew me from reputation at LinkedIn. Um, He knew that I was interested in the area and I had some friends who worked for the company. And so I remember him coming down and and talking about Wealthfront. Um, I had been fascinated by fintech, um, or at least what we now call fintech at the time in 2012. But I struggled when I talked to companies about what business model they were going to use to get to venture scale. Um, And so when I met Andy, um, we talked about that. We talked about the business model. We talked about growth and how you're going to acquire enough customers. Um, But he and I both agreed that the AUM model for an investment manager was going to get you to venture scale if you could have a service where you could acquire customers relatively inexpensively. And I saw a number. He shared with me some of the data, and I saw that at the time they just rolled out invitations and referrals for Wealthfront. But it looked like one in eight people who received a Wealthfront invitation actually accepted and opened an account. And while that isn't the number you'd expect from a social network like Facebook or or even LinkedIn at the time, it was within spitting distance of numbers that could make a system really run. And I realized that if you could build something like a Wealthfront, which had a business model that would scale, um, where most of your customer acquisition would be free, you could make that thing work, or at least it had a good shot of it. And so I was excited to try. You know, I'm, I've always been a big believer that there's not enough personal finance education in the U.S. Um, a lot of the best services are really economically isolated with the ultra-wealthy. And um, the idea of putting it in software so everyone could have access to it was just incredibly appealing to me. And the product problem of could you get people to trust a computer with your money – I just found fascinating and reminded me of a lot of previous problems uh, that dealt with in my career, and so jumped in uh, in December 2012. Um, I think the company at the time had about 1,500 customers, about 70 or 80 million in assets under management, and uh, had an exciting four years growing the company and really, I think, convincing most of the industry that it was possible to build companies like that. Yeah, it's interesting
0: you mentioned like uh, the business model questions you had early on with front. I just talked to. I just had an episode come out with a partner at Insight, and he said pretty much the same thing. Where in the early days of what is now fintech, uh, they were a little hesitant to make some investments because they weren't sure if they wanted to treat the company like a tech company or a, uh, a specialty finance company, and and how the you know the multiples would scale there. And the, the pendulum has swung so far the other way it seems from 2012 to now, where it's uh, maybe the business model is not you know considered enough <laughs> when looking at investments. Uh, so it's interesting to see that.
1: Yeah, it's Um, an amazing thing. But business model, I'm I'm a big believer that the business models really matter. I I wrote a post mm -hmm. years ago about how founders have to be more thoughtful about the business models that they choose for their product and services. Because I think in the case where your product works, where your business works, you will scale and you will hire more and more smart people. And those incentives really do steer the way that the business grows up. Right. When I, you know, I've had the good fortune fintech, for example, you know, at Wealthfront has an AUM based model. Acorns. As a subscription-based model. Um, the back end of Acorns and Wealthfront are not significantly different, right? The capabilities of those technology platforms, what features they can offer, there are some differences, but most of those differences are a product of the customer bases that they're pursuing, which I think is also related to the business models that they chose, right? So, um, I mean, both businesses have been very successful. Wealthfront obviously now has almost half a million customers, over 27 billion in assets under management, Acorns has more like five billion in assets under management. but I think over 10 million accounts, uh, close to five million paying customers it's, it's really an amazing business by itself. And so but yeah, in the early days, all we had to go on were just very few companies, right? No one had a practice doing this, right. Intuit had been big back in the day in Great Plains. PayPal obviously had made it, although anyone who was involved with PayPal in the early days didn't really want to do it again. Like, I think they <laughs> had to take a breather for a while because um, it was hard. And uh, and so even, you know, 10 years later, the number of people who were willing to believe that you could build a venture-class business in the area was small. But 2012 was an exciting time. I met some wonderful founders there. Um, people were starting out. That's how I met, you know, Brian Armstrong at Coinbase. He had just raised his seed, um, you know, Canon Credit Karma had just gotten going. I remember meeting in 2013 Henry at eShares, um, which became Carta. And so it was really an exciting time. We were doing Wealthfront, Credit Karma was going, Coinbase was going. so And and Ribbit had just started at the time as a dedicated VC to fintech. So um, it's amazing to think where we came in the last 10 years. Incredible.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool story. Uh, you mentioned being uh, fascinated about personal financial management. Um, just curious if there's like any anything you took away from your time at Wealthfront, any like, common misconceptions that consumers have about their personal finance management?
1: Well, I mean, Wealthfront is a, is an interesting turn of the crank because the idea with Wealthfront once again was, is there a group of people that will trust a computer to manage their money and, and what would they trust? And so one of the things that Wealthfront decided early is that if you wanted the most trustworthy system, and if, if, if all money businesses are fundamentally about trust with the consumer then the most trustworthy thing would be the thing that has the best academic grounding, right? If you've gone to any high-quality school, not everyone can get into Wharton, but, you know, if, if you've gone to a high-quality school, you learn about portfolio construction, you learn about how to think about asset classes and expenses and long-term returns and um, and all these different things. And so the idea behind WealthOne was to build that all into software so that anyone could have it. You didn't have to go to Wharton to know how to construct a portfolio. You didn't have to work for an endowment um, to know how to construct a portfolio out of different asset classes, we could do that for you. And and that idea was a was a great one, and it was very controversial at the time, right? People mostly before Wealthfront, people associated online investing with active investing and stock trading, right? That was the '90s, right? It was self-directed. It was people who wanted to take their money into their own hands and make investments. And so the idea of delegating. Right. People who didn't want to manage the money themselves, trusting a software based system with it um, was really hard to imagine at the time. Uh, Now, of course, I think we, this is just how, this is how technology rolls through society. Right. Like people today have a different attitude towards technology than people did even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We trust computers with a lot more. In fact, in many cases, we trust the computer more than we trust people. Like how many people want to ask someone for directions now? versus using Google Maps. I'm sure there's a few, but for the most part, we actually trust the computer more to guide us. And I think that's a long-term trend. I think we're gonna continue to trust computers more and more with aspects of our lives. I mean, even Daffy um, represents a little bit of an extension of, can we trust software? Can we trust a service with helping us with something as important as how we give? This is all about us getting used to having help with our lives um, from software and services built over this amazing infrastructure we keep innovating on.
0: And let's talk a bit more about Daffy now. So could you kind of talk a little bit about how you decided to found Daffy and what was the problem that you were looking to solve with the company?
1: Well, like a lot of things, uh, Daffy was a convergence of a few different ideas. Um, I remember when I was at, at Greylock, as in the IR, I had a number of different ideas. And one of the lists I had was different financial products that had not been reinvented yet. And I had a donor-advised fund at the time for almost a decade. I thought it was a great financial product. It just turned out that no one knew about it, right? Like if you had not been an executive or founder with a liquidity event, if you didn't have a high-end advisor, wealth manager, or accountant, um, you probably didn't know that a donor-advised fund existed. Um, But by itself, that didn't seem like a big enough idea. It seemed like a feature. When I was at Wealthfront, I always thought that we would eventually roll out a donor-advised fund, right? It seemed like another account type. But I think the pandemic changed everything, right? You know, so I had time off. I was thinking about different things. And what I saw was this incredible bifurcation, this this split between people who actually, despite all the emotional and medical stress of the pandemic, if you were in the right industries, right, if you were in tech, if you were invested in stocks and crypto, actually the pandemic was good for you financially. Right. Like most people saw their portfolios ballooned, companies went public, valuations went up. And so there was this dichotomy, this split between if you were in the right industries doing well. And then of course, there are millions of people not doing well. And I saw people reinvesting themselves in their communities, caring about what was going on near them. And so the idea of saying, well, what if we reinvented the donor advised fund, not as a financial product by itself, but as the heart of a community? What if we took that old-fashioned idea of putting money aside for those less fortunate than yourself, right? It's something probably, you know, maybe your grandmother (laughs) taught you at some point. Uh, You know, some authority figure, this idea that no matter what's going on in your life, good, bad, or ugly, there are people less fortunate than yourself. And you should remember to be grateful for, for what you have and put money aside. For those less fortunate than yourself. So those ideas kind of stewed together. Alejandro Crosa, who's my co-founder, um, was one of my favorite engineers to work with at LinkedIn. We had been talking about doing a company for over five years. Um, and he had done some early work with donors choose, right? He had worked at great companies since LinkedIn, you know, Twitter, Slack, etc. A Real amazing talent. Um, but he was very passionate about this idea of could we use software, could we build a system that helped people be as generous as they want to be? And so that's what that's where we started with Daffy, right? So mm-hmm. I, I have to admit, I probably would not have had the confidence to start Daffy um, if I hadn't been on the board for five years at Acorns and saw how you could take a very simple product, um, put it in the app store, and actually get millions of people to save. And I got excited about the idea: what if we could get millions of people to give? Right? Mm-hmm. What if those same features? What if all that behavioral finance, all those clever ways that we figured out how to get people to trust software with money? What if instead of just helping people to spend or helping people to save, what if we help them give, right? Why couldn't we make that happen? And, and that took us down the path. Um, and we, you know, we formed a company. Um, fortunately, Ribbit Capital was willing to do our seed round and, and get us out, built a team and spent a, almost a year in stealth working on what we launched in September um, as the first version of Daffy.
0: Yeah, that's that's an incredible story. Uh, I saw on the website Daffy has three types of portfolios for uh, for its customers: standard, ESG, and, and crypto. Um, could you kind of define the three and, and explain how you came to you know decide that these are the right three for you?
1: Yeah, well, th- very happy to. Um, I mean, in the end, our mission, right at Daffy, is very simple: we want to help people give more and give more often, right? Like that's that's what we're focused on. And it turns out one of the reasons some people didn't like the idea of a donor-advised fund is they didn't like the idea of putting money aside and having it sit uninvested, right? They were worried they were missing out on gains. And so having investment portfolios is a part of the product puzzle, right? So the idea that you can put money aside, get the tax benefit today, um, but that money is still invested helps people be more generous and put money aside. So what we wanted to do with the portfolios is actually cover a broad range of interests, Um, There are some people who really just want to go buy the book. They want a standard portfolio of low-cost index funds. Um, We launched three standard portfolios. They're all Vanguard ETFs, kind of asset allocation that you'd expect. Um, But it's a good low-cost diversified portfolio. I think it, it clocks in right now at an average of four basis points, right? So very low cost. There are quite a people, though, who want to give, who want more of their values in their investment portfolio, And so we took a number of BlackRock, ESG, ETFs, et cetera, and constructed similar portfolios. They're slightly higher cost because ESG funds are higher cost. Um, But for folks who want that alignment and want an ESG portfolio, we provide those as well. And then, of course, it's crypto, right? It's uh, it's the 2020s. Um, Crypto is no longer a secret. This is not something, you know, in 2012, when I'm reading, you know, the Bitcoin white paper, there weren't that many people who were that interested in it. Uh, But today... Millions of people are interested in it. And so we offer three crypto portfolios, one that's diversified. So all the traditional asset classes, stock, bonds, domestic, global, um, but also a crypto allocation using an index fund put out by Bitwise Investments. Um, And then two pure crypto portfolios we offer based on our partnership with Coinbase. Um, One is a pure Bitcoin portfolio and the other is a market cap split between Bitcoin and Ethereum, roughly.
0: So I know that one of your goals with Daffy is to make giving more accessible. Uh, would love if you could just share uh, with the listeners like how you've done that through Daffy and how the cost structure differs a little bit from other uh, similar firms.
1: Yeah, well, it's a great question. It was something we thought a lot about because, as I mentioned before, business model is a very important aspect, I think, when you're starting a new company, a new service. And we purposely made Daffy accessible to as many people as possible. So, you know, even Vanguard, a firm that I love, the minimum to open a donor advised fund there is $25,000. And even when you open it, it's 60 basis points, right? So having, you know, an account with them is is actually very expensive. Daffy is free under $100. And then above $100, we charge just $3 a month as a membership, um, which makes it much less expensive than the other products and also much more accessible. And we actually think that this is important for the industry. Um, I've come out and said that I think that the AUM model is actually bad for donor advised funds. It's bad for the industry. Because unfortunately, it has a conflicting incentive, right? If you have a $10,000 donor advice fund somewhere and you give away $2,000, well, that firm just lost 20% of their revenue. So they're just not incented to have you give money. Um, we set up Daffy to be ambivalent, right? We just want you in the community. We want you committed to giving. And so we felt that the membership model, just like you'd see at a community center or local church or synagogue, was actually a much better model for running a donor advice fund. And so at $3 a month, this is what we saw at Acorns. You know, basically anyone can do that. Yeah,
0: and, and the website mentions like making, giving a habit. And I think it's very important that you have, you know, these three t- different types of portfolios on the same platform, making it easier for, for consumers to kind of focus on their ESG investments along with their other investments as well. Can you talk about that, that statement of like making, giving a habit and, and what kind of nudge you think people need uh, to make that
1: part of their daily or, you know, yearly investing? Yeah, you know, it's very interesting. This idea of making giving a habit comes from the basic behavioral finance insight, which is that if you make a commitment and automate a financial problem, you get much better consistent performance than if you just do it transactionally. I mean, you and I both know the amount of money that people would save for retirement would be much, much lower if people had to remember to write a check or if some friend had to ask them, right? The best way to save for retirement Is to pick a number that you want to save and have it come out of your paycheck every time, right? You don't even see it. It just accumulates, right? And so, actually, there's a lot of research behind this. And what was interesting, one of the things that we looked at when we were thinking about Daffy was, is there similar research about giving, right? Is there any research that suggests that if you automate putting money aside that you actually end up giving more money. And not surprisingly, it turned out there is. You know, Richard Thaler wrote a paper um, with Dr. Bernarzi, who's one of our advisors back in 2004, famous paper on improving retirement saving through pre-commitment, right, through automation. Mm -hmm. Um, And we found a similar paper in 2006, a derivative, that actually said that it would increase giving by up to 32% if you had this pre-commitment. And we had seen the same thing in our user research and customer development. Right. People had a number in mind that they thought they should be giving every year, but no one got around to doing it. Everyone got busy, <laughs> social life, professional life. I mean, we had a pandemic. There's a lot, there's a lot going on. Um, and so what, what ended up happening is we said, we'll build that into the product. And so um, I called this a few weeks ago. I actually call this a challenge to the industry. I call it the generosity gap. I mean, the U.S. is amazingly generous. I think in 2020, the U.S. gave about four hundred and seventy one billion dollars to charity. And 334 billion of that came from individuals like that weren't big foundations or or companies, et cetera, over 300 billion. I mean, think about that. Like that's that's more than a percent of GDP. In fact, the total amount is more than two percent. I mean, there are entire sectors of the economy, significant sectors that are smaller than that. I think agriculture is less than one percent of GDP. So most people focus on how big that number is. But for us, we said, why can't that number be bigger? right? It looks like actually people are not giving as much as they can. They're not even giving as much as they want to. And so a lot of those same techniques that we use at Acorns to help people get in the habit of saving, we use to get in the habit of giving by separating that problem. We believe that if people just pick a number, we don't even care which number it is. Everyone disagrees, by the way, on how much they should give. But whatever your number is, make it a goal, right? People have fitness goals. They have health goals. They have professional goals. They have personal goals set a goal for giving, automate putting that money aside, and then you can focus on the real problem, which is finding causes and organizations that you believe in, where you actually want to help them by sending some of that money. And and the wonderful thing about the Daffy product is it lets you do that. It lets you separate those two problems, right? The the problem of how much you can afford to give is separated from who do you give the money to. Mm -hmm. That 32%
0: number you gave for how much donations or, or giving increases uh, when it becomes automated is, is really astounding. And I can't help but think about, you know, the current crisis in Ukraine and, and how much money or how much donations are being sent to the country right now um, to kind of support them and, and just kind of drawing parallels there to how much people are willing to give. And, you know, if we make that process easier, how much more we could do with it. So uh, incredible product. Thank you for sharing that. I want to transition a little bit to talking about, you know, starting a not-for-profit organization, which I believe Daffy is. Curious if that was like, you know, you've had a lot of experience with for-profit organizations. Curious if the process of starting a
1: not-for-profit one was a little bit harder, or easier, some challenges you didn't expect beforehand. Well, everything is is hard the the first time. And I have never started a not-for-profit organization before. But like anything, I think with technology and, and, and in general with entrepreneurship, you have to be willing to learn. You know, in the early days of Wealthfront, um, there weren't a lot of startups that had formed a registered investment advisor. I mean, now... It feels like everyone knows how to do this. There's hundreds of startups that are doing this um, in all different areas. Um, but, you know, it turns out it's a solid problem. I have been on the board of a couple non-for-profit organizations, uh, been active in that area. It turns out that donor advised funds do exist. There's uh, not so many, but there's there's about a thousand in the U.S. so far. So it's not so rare to find someone who's worked for one or or helped build one. And um, I think that we've learned in fintech in general, at least I believe, That taking a pro-regulatory posture, um, not trying to avoid regulations, but trying to deeply understand what are all the requirements, why do they exist, how can we re-implement them in software, um, it's an exciting challenge. Um, So, you know, it wasn't easy. And I I think that, you know, we certainly spent our share um, on lawyers and experts to help figure out how to do this. Uh, But I think that's that's how you push things forward in this industry, right? One company learns how to do this. It helps others learn how to do this. And we had examples, right? You know, Fidelity Charitable, Schwab Charitable, Vanguard Charitable, these things all exist, right? And so mm. a lot of the work was just understanding how those organizations got started, how they were structured, um, and then making sure to do all the right things. And so fortunately, we we were able to do this. And it wasn't um, – once we figured out who the regulators were and how it worked, uh, making sure that we understood all the requirements – um, but I'm actually very proud of the team. We, we actually went from basically idea to a live donor advice fund in about a year, which, um, and by the way, not just a generic donor advice fund, one that could take cash, but also stock. It could take crypto. You know, as you mentioned, all the different portfolios you could invest in, the ability to donate and send money to over one and a half million charities across the U.S. Um, so I'm very proud of the team and we, we did a, a number of innovative things in the process too, that made me excited that we were onto something.
0: Very cool. And let me zooming out a little bit now. I uh, would just love to get your thoughts on the fintech industry overall. And uh, maybe some uh, sectors that you're particularly excited to see play out over the next three to five years.
1: Yeah, well, I, I'll give you some high-level themes. Um, I wrote a bit about this. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about, before I started Daffy <laughs> um, about where I thought fintech was going in the next five years towards 2025. And I, I still feel strongly about it. The three biggest trends I see in fintech in general, um, the first one is around the target audience. I think that the early fintech companies like Wealthfront um, struggled to find a customer base that was so tech forward, so risk-seeking that they were willing to trust their money into new software and startups um, that they'd never heard of, Um, which ended up being largely young people, right? This is why you saw every startup focusing on millennials and, and that sort of generational language. You still hear some of that around Gen Z, et cetera. I think the pandemic changed all that. I, I think everyone was forced to trust computers a lot more during the pandemic and being remote. I mean, even my parents, you know, who are near retirement um, and used to always deposit their checks by walking over the bank once <laughs> once a week, actually uh, got over the hump to using their, their phones to automatically deposit checks and schedule all their transactions and use Zoom. And so... I, I think that this idea that fintech opportunities now are only for young people, I, I think, is dated. And I think we're seeing see over the next five years services for all generations and age types, which is exciting because there's a lot of financial problems that happen uniquely at different times of life. And so I'm excited about that. Um, the second set of opportunities I see are very much um, getting away from single player games. Um, sorry to borrow the language from gaming, but um, and moving to multiplayer um, in the move from Web 1.0 to Web 2.0. This was one of the big changes that happened. Uh, but fundamentally, single player games are easier to get started because and think of money. Right. Do I trust my money with servers? I make that decision myself. But we know that there's a lot of value to be created when people work together. And the problem is there's a lot of financial problems that feel very private. And single player but i think what i predicted was that we're going to see more and more investment in financial applications that involve multiple people my angel portfolio i see features where you know how do you solve the financial problems of roommates living together right how do you solve the financial problems of a young person supporting someone who's retired and maybe you don't want to see make financial mistakes right someone older all these ideas i think are fantastic these intergenerational ideas group ideas etc um, and Daffy itself is, is based a bit on that, right? The great thing about giving, it actually is social. We, we align around the causes and organizations we support, whether it's a small school or a community center, um, or even, you know, large organizations fighting for social justice or for the environment, et cetera. Um, and then the third trend that I saw happening were unique applications. So I'm um, sorry, I'm dating myself, but you know, web one, oh, was very much taking software that already existed and putting it online right, on the web, right? And so most of the products and services weren't really unique. Um, Think of monster.com, right? You know, oh, instead of sending in resumes or mailing in resumes or going to a job fair and turning in resumes, I can submit my resume online to job job postings. Great. Um, What we saw, though, with Web2O were unique applications. LinkedIn isn't really like that, right? This idea of a professional network, a place where a community could get together, discuss things that aren't appropriate in other venues, but are appropriate in a professional atmosphere, was very hard to understand when you were looking in Web 1.0. But in Web 2.0, we started seeing very unique things that couldn't have existed before. And so I think fintech is ready to do that. I I think that for the most part, fintech 1.0 or whatever you want to call the wave that happened last 10 years was very much focused on reproducing existing products and services online and reimagining them in the process. But they mostly ended up similar, right? Like Wealthfront is like having a financial advisor. But online, um, Acorns is a fantastic savings application that helps you with your financial life. Um, Robinhood is a brokerage, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm excited about for this next run are more unique applications, things that don't exist. And by the way, you'll see this from Daffy too, right? Daffy is not going to end up looking like a donor advice fund from Fidelity or Schwab or Vanguard. Um, Daffy already has social elements where you can see what other people um, are saying when they donate to different causes, um, using mobile location to understand where you are and what giving looks like in your area. And so I'm excited about it. This is what made Web 2.0 so exciting. And I think it's going to make fintech very exciting. Um, obviously, I didn't talk about the elephant in the room. Um, there's an amazing, amazing amount going on with crypto and Web 3, of course. Um, I don't see that as in conflict with the next generation in fintech. I, I think you're going to see a lot of hybrid applications and other interesting things going on, like DAFI, where it's crypto native in terms of the fact that people use crypto from day one. Right? Some Our biggest contributions at DAFI have been crypto to date. But at the same time it's not positioned as a crypto application. It just treats crypto like everything else as a, as a valid way to move assets and money around. Yeah, you mentioned in that answer
0: a few different times like different social elements of fintech and I think that's such an important wave uh, direction for the industry to move in. Like in traditional financial services like a lot of the advice that I would get would be from a trusted person that has gone through this before, say a parent or or someone else like like that that you trust like that. And I think bringing that uh, to the online world is incredibly important as
1: well. Um, oh, for so sure. Especially cool. since yeah. not everyone has the same access, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I went to college, right? You know, I went to college, I knew nothing about the stock market. Um, I grew up in Silicon Valley, but my parents are both doctors. I did not have an active understanding of venture capital or the stock market or even what a bond was or a mutual fund. And in my dorm, there were some kids who had had family and parents who had taught them about money in those ways and some who didn't. Um, I had to learn from my grandmother a few years in and then took a bunch of coursework um, to learn about finance, et cetera. But I think when you put these things into software and you bring in the social element, you can bring people together. You empower millions of people to learn, to invest. And I, I think that that's an important part of the software. So I am excited. As much progress as we've made in FinTech and as many people as we've helped with great services and lowering costs, et cetera. I'm even more excited about bringing people together. I think it will broaden the market, and I think it will create unique value that hasn't existed previously in the traditional industry.
0: Amazing. Uh, and Adam, the last thing I wanted to do today was just ask you a few rapid-fire questions to help the uh, audience get to know you a little better. Oh, I um, didn't make sure i hoping... had all my coffee. It's rapid. <laughs> I'll do it. Could do it. Yeah, hoping for answers in like 10 seconds or less, let's say. Okay. All right, let's do it. Uh,
1: what was your first show? I got an internship in high school where they let me not go to school one day a week, and I was an intern at NASA. It was my first actual programming work. I did computational fluid dynamics. It was the early days of simulations to replace wind tunnels, that sort of thing.
0: That's probably the coolest first job I've ever heard. Um, great answer.
1: <laughs> well, it didn't do your... anything,
0: but learned a yeah. lot. You learned, you gained experience, you know, as yeah. they say. What is your favorite application on your phone?
1: Well, I'm pretty sure that if you look at the time spent, it's a little too much in in Twitter, um, <laughs> <laughs> a little too much in Twitter. Um, I don't know. I like I like mobile gaming. I like learning from new apps, etc. I've actually come back into um, played over the over the pandemic. I ended up playing Pokemon Go with my kids quite a bit. Um, I always love the innovation that people have around mobile gaming, what works and what doesn't. So, um, yeah, I yeah. think. Uh, But yeah, Twitter is probably the the app that gets the most usage on my phone right now. Good, bad or ugly. Nice. Um, If you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? Oh, man. After this pandemic, I just want to see friends. I I know. (laughs) That's that's (laughs) probably not the answer you're looking for. (laughs) No, that's Uh, great. But uh, honestly, one of the things I'm most excited about with the pandemic receding is just seeing seeing friends, colleagues again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, What's your favorite movie? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's hard to top Groundhog Day It's almost a perfect movie. I mean, yep. right now it feels like no one can tell a story in less than 10 hours with the whole season on streaming. <laughs> Groundhog Day in the short, it just, but it's amazingly perfect and it captures those little time travel elements and a little bit of humor. I don't know. Uh, rewatched yeah. it over the, the break, but felt, uh, it definitely was a good pandemic movie. There's no question. Nice.
0: Yeah. All right. Last question for today, Adam, and you can take a little longer on this one. Sure. Uh, what does success look like for you and for
1: Daffy? I mean, those are very aligned right now. I mean, I've been very fortunate in my career. I'm on the board of, of a couple of companies. I've been an angel investor in over a hundred now and, and seen some of those founders do amazing things, right? I mean, Opendoor, Gusto, Figma are just incredible companies now. But for me, Daffy is intertwined, right? You know, what's the point of all of that success and that information and knowledge and, and trust if you can't use it to do something uh, important. And so for me, for Daffy, the excitement is what if we actually could build a community of millions of people who are all putting some money aside for those less fortunate themselves and having that community inspire each other, give, be more generous. Um, I think that's a new thing that should exist. Um, I think it's something that could exist. And I think if we can use software, if we can use all this great fintech innovation to help people give and, and inspire each other, um, it'll make a meaningful difference for thousands of organizations and the millions and millions of people that they help. And so, yeah, so that's that's what we're shooting for, Daphne. I mean, it's it's early days, small numbers, et cetera. But if Acorns can get millions of people to save, I'm hoping we can get millions of people to give.
0: Yeah, that's, a, that's an incredible answer, Adam, and I think probably a pretty good place to wrap it up for today. Um, so thank you so much uh, for your time on the show with us. Uh, wish you and Daffy all the best of luck. I think it's an incredible mission and uh, happy to happy to see you
1: working on it. So thank you. Yeah. And, and I hope to see you on Daffy.org.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Warden Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor Raphael Austria for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.